we ought to come to Christ with reverence and understanding that yes, Jesus calls us friend, but Jesus is also the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, amen? Now that was all free. Ain't gonna cost you nothing. Yes, ma'am. Amen, amen. We're just glad you're back. Amen. Amen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, just to reflect for a moment on the question that we went over this morning about what offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer, it's very important that we understand that Christ is the great prophet. He's the prophet greater than Moses. He's the only true prophet. Amen. He's the only one who speaks the very words of God. Hebrews says that in times past, God spoke through the prophets, through Moses. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. And that his testimony of Christ is greater. Why is Christ's testimony so great? Because he's God. Amen? Christ, as our great priest, is not just a priest like a regular priest. He's the great high priest. After the order of Melchizedek, who by himself not only gave the sacrifice, not only does he take the sacrifice up to the heavenly place is what Hebrews tells us, right? That Jesus entered into the most holy place in the heavenly realm, but the sacrifice that he presented was his own self. As a priest, priests of the, of the old covenant would make sacrifice of other animals. Perfect animals without spot or blemish. And they would have to sacrifice for their own sins. And then they would have to go and sacrifice for the sins of the people. But Jesus, as the great high priest, didn't have to do that. Because he was the perfect spotless lamb. He was the atoning sacrifice. He was the only way that God would reconcile back with himself lost humanity. So when he died, he died for the sins of all men. That he might... Be the great high priest and take the perfect sacrifice before the Father. Without Jesus being our great high priest, we, have, we would have no hope of salvation. None. Thirdly is king of kings. Remember, when Jesus comes back, the Bible says that he'll be on a white horse. He'll be clothed in all white. He'll have eyes like the flaming fire. Hair white as wool. Sword coming out of his mouth that would devour the enemies of God. And written on his tunic, his belt, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Why? Because he came to establish a kingdom of which his rule would never end, according to the scriptures. 
Amen. That's why in the book of Revelation he said, I am the seed of David. I am because I am the one who's going to sit on this throne for all eternity. This is the Jesus that we worship. Not this made up, Osteenified Jesus that only wants to do good for you now, that only wants to make you rich and have cars and whatever. It's a lie. Jesus himself said, Store not for yourself up treasure on earth where moth and rust will eat, where thieves can break in and steal, but store for yourself treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust can corrupt nor thieves can break in and steal. Because, my brothers and sisters, we are not looking for a hope of some earthly thing. Our hope is firmly set in the heavenlies to the next life, to the next world. Say, well, preacher, the earth is going to, uh, uh, heaven's going to come and be on earth. Yep, and when it gets here, it won't be called earth no more. Could be called heaven. <laughs> the new Jerusalem. Amen. Being in the very presence of God. I'm excited this morning. I'm excited about the message that I'm going to preach to you this morning. I'm excited because we're continuing through John 6. If you don't uh, have a Bible, there's one in the pew. But we're in John chapter 6 and we're at verse... 22 but before we get there i want to kind of recap what we've discovered in this chapter first of all the chapters uh chapter 6 verse 1 through 15 we see jesus feeding the five thousand. this is the fourth miracle in the book of john that jesus has performed and it is the first miracle in this chapter and it's the first miracle of the same day I don't think everybody realizes that Jesus' miracle of feeding the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water is on the same day. It was just the evening. Amen? So not only is it the first miracle in this chapter, it's the first miracle of that day. <laughs> Amen? In the verse 16 through 21, he walks on the water. Last week we talked about Jesus performing the second sign in this chapter in part because his disciples' hearts were hardened. They were hard and they did not understand the meaning of the loaves and the fishes when he fed the 5,000. In, in Mark chapter uh, 6, verse 52, it tells us, that he went to walk on the water to them to show himself to them. They were astonished. And then he says, Mark makes record that because their hearts were hardened and didn't understand the loaves. Jesus was trying to teach his disciples something when he was dividing the loaves and the fish. And they didn't get it. Neither did the people. We'll find that out this week. Here again, we continue this week. We will deal with wrong motives, wrong motives in following Christ, wrong motives in, in uh, serving Christ, wrong motives in, in seeking after Christ. 
We'll deal with hard hearts that are unable to understand. And we'll deal with Christ extending grace, the grace of God, the gospel, and eternal provision to those who do not understand. So if you would, turn with me to John chapter 6. We're going to start at verse 22. I will read out the ESV this morning. I'll make mention of a few verses in the King James just for my own benefit. Maybe not yours, but I like the King James. <laughs> Throw it out there, Kyle. <laughs> on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there. And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. But other boats from Tiberias came near to the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say unto you, You are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Now this is where we're going to start here at verse 22. I'm not going to read any farther because there's a whole bunch of stuff I could get into that I'll get lost in talking and we'll miss some of the nuggets of gold that we could refine right here. First of all, the crowd that was left behind, the crowd that was left behind noted that 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 they had, there had only been one boat. Excuse me, can't even read my own handwriting. It's my bad. The crowd left behind noted that there had only been one boat and that Jesus' disciples left by themselves. They were more than likely at a loss and confused about how Jesus had left. Okay? So these people obviously didn't see Jesus leave, so they were trying with everything in them to find out, well, Jesus didn't take the boat, so where did he go and how did he get there? Amen? They didn't know where he went. 
Now, it's interesting that when boats from Tiberias come near, it seems as if they're looking for Jesus and the disciples in those boats. Look at what it says. Verse uh, 23. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they got into the boats. What boats? The boats that were in verse 23. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And then it says, so the crowd saw that Jesus was not there. Where? Was not where? Was not in the boats that they saw. That's what he's talking about. The crowd was looking. Their boats from Tiberias came close to where they were. And they're like, hey, is Jesus and the disciples in those boats? Nope. So what do they do? They go hop in them boats and say, hey, take us to Capernaum. We're looking for Jesus. Now, I would always rejoice when people say, I'm looking for Jesus. But God knows the motives of our hearts. And we know from John that John understood that Jesus knew what was in the heart of man. Didn't need to be counseled about man because he knew what was in the heart of every man. Amen? Now, Jesus, when they get there, does not see their motives as pure. He looks at their motives and questions them. We don't like that, do we? Pastor goes, I don't know if you really understand what you're doing or why you're doing that. Or, and then, oh, oh, it's between me and God. Well, it might be. Or it might be that God put his church down here so that we can... Iron sharpens iron and, and tell each other when we're all messed up. Amen? Matter of fact, before Jesus was ever even crucified, he said, if you see your brother caught in a fault, go to him. If he doesn't listen to you, take two or three witnesses and go to him again. And if he doesn't listen to you three, then you go and take him before the church and tell it to the church. And if he doesn't listen to the church, then treat him as if he were a Gentile. Amen? Church order. I know we don't like that, okay? We, we like this whole idea that the gospel is totally personal. My relationship with Christ is only personal. But guess what? Not one of the New Testament books was written to a single individual. It was written to churches. Amen. Every single believer in Christ needs to be a part of a church. It will help you grow. It will help you become grounded. It will help you become perfect. That's why Paul writes, as every part is fit together, doing its own part, they will be built up to a perfect man. You can't have that by yourself. You don't get that by yourself. Here's a couple things that you can't have all by yourself. Communion is not something you can have by yourself. Communion in the New Testament is always done in the context of the local body of believers. Every time. It is never done alone. Ever. Amen? Here's another thing you can't do by yourself. Baptism. Baptism is a public proclamation of following Christ. Amen? I was told when I was like, well, why do I go get baptized? The pastor, when I was growing up, Jerry Stafford looked right at me and he said, son, 
Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. So if you want to, if you, it, what you're doing at this baptism is you're making a proclamation that you're following Christ. You're publicly telling everyone you're following Christ. But there's many other things that we're meant to do together. Pray together. Pray for one another. Amen? We're meant to read and discern the scriptures together. We're meant to. It's not meant to be done alone. It's meant to be done together. Why? Because we need each other. Amen? Now watch this. Jesus. They're, they're looking for Christ. Verse 24. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they got themselves out into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Now it's obvious that they're still beside themselves about how Jesus got there because their very first question to him was not, Hey, Rabbi, sup? I come here for some more bread. They didn't say that, did they? Now they might have been thinking that. That might have been their motivation because Jesus tells them, You didn't come here. Because you saw the sign, you came here because you ate and your belly was filled with the bread, right? What did they ask? When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Let me paraphrase that. How in the world did you get here and what time did you show up? Why was that the question? Why did they say, when did you get here instead of how did you get here? Because when would tell them how. If Jesus would have walked, it would have taken him longer to get there. And he would have arrived at a different time. But if he took the boat, it was faster. And he'd have got there earlier. That's why they say, when did you get there? When did you get here? Now, Proverbably, I'm sure they were still wondering how in the world he left without them noticing, right? It's probably a good question, right? It, it, it's probably just as amazing as all those times where Jesus was in the temple and the Pharisees come to attack him, but he slipped away. Right? And he wasn't there anymore. Just, right? I don't know. Seems like Jesus might have had some gorilla training or something. I don't know. He was just slipping in and out of places. I'm just joking, okay? Don't, don't quote me. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> no. Jesus simply would leave when he... Why did he leave this time? Go back and remember, what, remember why he left the last time. Verse 15 of this chapter says... Uh, perceiving they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Why did Jesus not want to be king right then? Because he could not be king till he made atonement for our sins. He was not coming down here to do his own will. He was coming down here to fulfill a plan that God had ordained him to do. Amen? It was not happenstance that Jesus went anywhere. It wasn't happenstance that he went to Samaria and saw that woman at the well. It wasn't happenstance that he happened upon Nicodemus. It was not happenstance. Jesus did everything because God sent him down here to fulfill the scriptures, 
to fulfill the plan of God for salvation for us. Amen? And for all who believe. Amen? So this isn't an accident. Jesus didn't just get here by accident. But they wanted to know how, when did you get here? Verse 26, watch Jesus' answer. And this is where we're going to really start getting into some deep water, okay? Verse 26, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, but not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So immediately Jesus here is questioning their motives for coming after him. Amen? Now, here's what I want to give to you this morning about this, okay? The reality is there's a whole lot of people that say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Amen? There's a lot of people that say, oh, I believe in Jesus. I'm seeking after Jesus. A whole lot of preachers on TV that claim to be speaking for Jesus. But you can see their motives are not really for Christ or Christ's kingdom. They're to line their own pockets. They're to fill their own bellies, just like this crowd only came to get another free meal. It's exactly what Jesus is con uh, accusing them of. He says, you're not seeking me because you saw the signs and believed that I'm the Messiah. You're coming to me because you got a free meal yesterday and you want one today. You ate your fill of those loaves and you want some more. That's what he's telling them. Unequivocally what he's saying is they are seeking to only fill their belly. They are not seeking him because he's the Messiah. They're not seeking him because he's the way to salvation. They are simply seeking him to get something from him. There's a whole lot of Christian people today. I'm going to use that term loosely. Because Jesus said, many in that day will say unto me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out devils in your name? Did we not do many wonderful works in your name? And he'll look at them and say, depart from me, you who work iniquity. I never knew you. You see, those people's motives were wrong in following Christ in Matthew 7. Those people's motives were not genuine. They were not birthed out of an actual born-again experience where they saw him as the risen Savior, the, the Christ, the Messiah. Later on in this chapter, we're going to understand wholeheartedly that God has to reveal this to a person. The reality that Jesus, when he asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they said, some say Elias, some say Jeremiah, some say one of the other prophets, John the Baptist maybe. And he said, but who do you say that I am? And only Peter. Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus' words are an echo for every person that would ever believe in him. And this is it. Flesh and blood have not revealed this to you. But my Father, which is in heaven, why? Because no one can come to the Son except the Father draws him. That's later in this chapter. But the reality that these men and women had wrong motives in coming to Christ is evident in how he speaks to them. 
They still don't get it. I want to read a little note here. When did you come here? They asked him. Or, sorry. Truly, truly. I want you to understand the King James says verily, verily, right? King James says verily, verily. The Greek is amen, amen. Okay? This verily, verily, or truly, truly is amen and amen. Okay? Which generally means yes and so be it. But when you put it in front of a discourse, what it means is of a truth. Or this thing is true. Surely, truly, of a truth. That's what this verily, verily means. That's what this truly, truly means. That's what this amen, amen, before he makes this statement. What he's saying is amen, amen, this thing I'm about to tell you is all truth. Okay? Now watch what he says. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your, and your bellies were full. He's telling them, as the amen, giving them an amen, amen response and telling them of a truth, you are not seeking me with right motives. You see, as we come and worship every Sunday morning and every Sunday night and every Tuesday and every Wednesday, when we come together as a body of Christ, our motives must be pure. We must be coming to Christ for the right reasons. Not for self-exaltation, not to just fill my own desires, not to just fill my belly, not for uh, 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 power, not for authority, not for any of those things, but for Christ and the mercy and the grace that I need this day, I need my daily bread. You are seeking me but not because you understood the signs, but because you wanted your physical needs or your material needs met. The Reformation Heritage Study Bible on verse 6 through 26 says this, Christ did not answer their question, but rebuked them because their interest in him arose from their having been well fed with earthly food and not from a hunger for God or his righteousness. That is needed, Matthew chapter 6. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. You see, those who have wrong motives in following Christ never seem to be satisfied with God. They have to have more blessing and more this and more that. Because in reality, it's not God they're seeking, it's the stuff that God can give them. I heard this quote, and I don't remember exactly where I heard it from. That he, he said, I think it was Paul Washer. He said, people don't, people, people uh, don't hate heaven. Everybody wants to go to heaven. They just don't want God to be there when they get there. You ask every person, do you want to go to heaven when you die? Yeah. Everybody wants uh, uh, what they don't deserve and what they can't get and all the good stuff that they missed out on. Everybody wants that heaven, but they don't want the God that's in that heaven. Verse 27. Look at what Jesus says, because we got to talk about this. Because many people get on different pages with this. 
Verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Do not work. This word work means labor. Don't labor for food that will not satisfy you. But work, labor for food that satisfies. Now, I want to make a quick note. We're going to get into this. But they totally misunderstand this as some other way of earning something from God. Because they ask him, well, what work do we have to do? What labor do we have to do? Verse 28, what do we got to do? I don't want you to misunderstand Jesus' words either. When he said labor for that which doesn't perish, he's not telling you that you can earn your way to heaven. What he's telling you is that there is labor, faith, is the work. Amen? The only thing I do is believe. Period. Amen? Jesus clears this up because they think something else. Okay? We'll see it in just a second. Uh, I have a few notes on this verse. Uh, it says, I, I wrote down, do not work. It means labor. Food that perishes. Earthly food will not last and will not give lasting sustenance. But work for the food that gives eternal life. Note that the Son of Man is the one who gives eternal life. He gives us this food. The Son of Man is a term and a title that Jesus most used about himself, which is he is the Christ. Christ is the Messiah, the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Amen? Now this coming Messiah that's spelled out in Daniel chapter 7, God has given him what? God gave him dominion and glory and a kingdom. Amen? Let's go read Daniel 7 just for clarification, okay? That way you know Pastor Kevin didn't fall off his, you know, proverbial soapbox and hit his head. I want you to know that I'm telling you the truth. Daniel 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is Christ. You go to the book of Revelation and you see on the sea of glass every nation and tribe and tongue and kindred and people. And they all fall down and worship the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. And they say what? All power, glory, forever and ever, right? They sing this song, the Almighty One, right? They give Him all this credit. Yours is dominion, yours is the kingdom forever, right? All power, all glory. You can read it all in Revelation 4. 
Go to Revelation 4. This ain't even in my notes. Somebody say amen. amen. Revelation 4. Verse 9, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before who are seated on the thrones and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before his throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all and by your will they exist and were created. And this echoes John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him. And nothing was made that was made without Him. Jesus is God. Jesus as the Lamb slain is worshipped in the next chapter the same exact way. They say blessing and honor and glory and power. Be unto him who sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Amen. We've got to understand that when Jesus said, you saw the sign of the bread, you should have known that it was me. You saw the sign of the bread, you should have known that I am this man from Daniel. But they did not see. Jesus said he is the giver of this food that endures to eternal life. Not only is he the giver of the food, but he himself is the bread. Woo! Let's go back to John. Verse 28. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? This is a very... Uh, important question but before we get to that I want to read a couple things for you okay I wrote I didn't write these down because the quotes were a little too long but I wanted to read to you uh, first from Augustine or Augustine excuse me Augustine in his treatise his uh, tactus of the gospel of John writes this faith indeed is distinguished from works as the apostle says that a person is justified by faith without works Romans 3 28 there are works that seem to be good because they are not referred to in the end from which they are good from the end of the law for the end of the law is Christ unto justice to everyone who believes Therefore, Jesus did not wish to separate faith from works, but he said that faith itself is the work, for it is the faith that works by love. He did not say, this is your work, but this is the work of God, that you believe in him who, has sent, who, him who he has sent, so that he who takes glory may glory in the Lord. It's a very important statement that Augustine is making here. This work is not originate from me. Amen. Belief in Christ does not originate in me. Why? Because I was dead in my trespasses and sins. 
the reality that I could only come out of the tomb when Jesus called me. That's a reality. Jesus standing outside the tomb of Lazarus had to say, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus didn't go, hold on, Jesus, I don't want to wake up. Lazarus didn't go, no, I'm dead. I don't want to be alive. Leave me alone. The reality that this Jesus is God, and when God speaks, <laughs> there's not a human will strong enough. There's not a human heart depraved enough to tell him no when he calls you from darkness into light. Every person that ever came to faith in Christ didn't come to Christ first. Christ first came to them. That's the truth. Amen? I can tell you my story. I wasn't looking for God. God found me. Just about everybody in this room probably has the same story. They weren't seeking after Christ. Christ found you right where you were. He, 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 all of a sudden, one day, you went from being a total enemy of God. You hated God. You didn't believe none of this Christian nonsense. You didn't, you didn't believe what your grandma always told you. You didn't believe all this stuff. That's a bunch of folk tale, fairy tale stuff. I don't believe any of that. And then one day, sovereign God spoke to your heart. Took that heart of stone out of your chest and plunged within you a heart of flesh that looked up to God and said, I need you. Wow. Wrong, murder, wrong motives are normally birthed from wrong hearts. Hearts that are not truly desiring God. Amen. Amen. And I wrote a quote from Spurgeon down here on verse 28 and 29 as well. This is the work of God that you believe in the one he has sent. Faith is most pleasing to God because it is comprehensive. It is the comprehensive summary of all true work. There lies within the heart of, of there lies within a heart of faith every possible form of holiness as a forest may be asleep within the acorn so within the bounds of faith little though it is every virtue lies hidden it is this virtue it may be microscopic in form but it is certainly there and only needs development it had, if I had before me a list of all the graces of the Spirit of God, and I were able to take them one up by one and examine them for faith, I would find some measure of all these good works of the Spirit hidden away in the simple act of believing in Jesus Christ. I know what some of us have asked. Is that all we have to do to be saved? Are we simply and only to believe in Christ? That is, trust 
and entrust ourselves to him? Yes, that is all. And it is the, so small an act that even the most uneducated heart can perform it. Yet within there are the inconceivable mysteries of goodness. What is more, all the grace comes out of faith. All the graces come out of faith in due time. For faith sums up the whole of a Christian's life. The reason I read these is because we, we spend so long asking these questions nowadays. Well, what, was, what must we do? What's the work that I have to do? Nothing. Believe. The reality is there's nothing in you good enough to please God. Because God demands perfection for you to come to Him. Does that mean, Pastor, are you telling people they can live however they want? Absolutely not. What I'm telling you is to get saved doesn't take any work on your part. If it did, it would not be grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Something that I didn't earn. The only way you get something that you earn is you work for it. If it was work, if work could get me to heaven, then Christ would not have had to come and die. The reality is every human being born on this planet is helpless without God. They are bound to sin. They are bound for hell without God's intervention. That's the truth. Jesus here is telling them. He said, what shall we do? What works should we do? Nothing. Only believe. Notice this, verse 29. This is the work of God. I want you to underline that in your Bible. He says that, and it says it almost the same way in the, in the King James too. Look at verse, here I'll read it out of the King James so you know I'm not telling you a fifth. And some of you are already reading it out of there. Jesus answered and said unto them, this is the work of God. I want you to underline that in your Bible. This is the work of God. They asked him a question specifically. What work do I need to do? Right? What works do we need to do to be doing the work of God? And he looks at them and said, this is the work of God. And I want you to underline that part. In my notes, I put, this is the work of God. And then I put a little equal sign. This is what it means. Okay? Verse 29. This is the work of God. That ye believe on him he hath sent. The work of God. Believe. Your part is to believe. Amen? That's what it means to come to faith in Christ, is it not? To be sure we are saved and justified by faith only. Romans 3.28 Galatians 2.16 Go to Romans 3, verse 28. I guess I'm going to read it out of King Jimmy here because that's what the Bible's on top. Romans 3, 28. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Amen? Go to Galatians chapter 2. And I could have found a whole bunch more, okay? I'm pretty sure that we all get this. I just want to make sure we nail it down. 
Galatians 2, verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith of Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by faith of Christ and not by works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Paul is very clear that we are saved by faith in Christ alone. We are saved by believing. Amen? There's not a work that I do to get myself to heaven. Now, does that mean when I give my heart to God, I can live however I want? You want me to give you the Romans chapter 6 answer for that? God forbid! God forbid that we who are dead to sin should live any longer in it. We're called to be different. We're called out of darkness to live in light. We're called to live, we're called out of the world to live different from the world. Yet the church today seems to let the world uh, dictate how we worship and how we do things. I didn't know if you noticed this or not, but I left the lights on today, and I did that on purpose. The Bible says that when we come into the light, we do all of our goodness in the light. That we could, God would see that our things, the things that we do, are done in the light. We shouldn't have to darken the room for your heart to feel like it can worship God. We need Christians that are willing and ready to worship God in the broad light of day. Amen. And not hide in the dark and shadows. We need Christians to be brave and bold. And believe. But because, verse 30, but because they did not understand the sign of the bread and the feeding of the 5,000. They still don't see him as a prophet like unto Moses. As a prophet greater than Moses. That you can read about that in Hebrews 3. They demanded a greater sign. Look at what they said in verse 30. So they said, then what sign do you do? Do you just, did you, did, what kind of gall, what kind of gall does it take to talk to a man that fed over 5,000 men, not including the women and children that were there, upwards of fifteen to 20,000 people, he fed with five loaves of barley and two fish. They watched it. They saw it. And they got the nerve to say, what sign do you do? Huh? Was that not enough? That's what they're doing today. Oh, I know Jesus died for me, but what else is there? Because the gospel ain't good enough. Christ's atonement for them, it ain't good enough. The sacrifice that he made, it's just not good enough. We got to dress it up and make it sound really good. We got to take all the hard parts out. You know the parts that say, repent and believe? The parts that say, if any man wants to follow him, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If a man's not willing to renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. All of those things are still Jesus' words and part of the gospel. They demand a greater sign. Jesus 
again begins conversation with them with an amen and an amen. Truly, truly, verily, verily. Verse 31. Let's read it. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Notice their focus is still on their fathers and not God who gave them the manna. Their focus is on the fathers who ate the bread instead of the God who gave them the bread to eat. Verse 32, Jesus answered them and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Now this is interesting because Jesus is using double talk here because he's talking about what he did back in the wilderness and he's talking about what has happened right before their very eyes because the bread of heaven was standing there talking to them. The bread that came down from God was standing there right in front of them. And they didn't see it because all they wanted was to fill their bellies and be like their fathers. And not be like God or run after God or have a hunger for God. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he. Notice now the bread of God gets a pronoun. He. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is the one who gives life to all men. Can we agree, John 1? Amen. He gives life, light to all men, and his light is the life of all, his life is the light of all men, right? Very important. Very important doctrinal things that are going on here. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Can I let you in on a little secret? Does anybody know what the word Bethlehem means house of bread when we sing away in a manger what we're realizing is that the bread from heaven came down and was born in a village called the house of bread and was placed in a feeding trough for animals where else would you put the bread that came from heaven but a place where he could be eaten. This bread that Jesus offers, he offers to these people, and they're not getting it. Verse 33, he said, the bread of God is. Anytime you have that kind of phrasing, whatever's coming next is what he's talking about, right? He says, the bread of God is. He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And I wrote down John 1, 1 through 14. You can go read it on your own, but it's the whole prologue pretty much of John. Verse 34, they still seem to misunderstand him, thinking merely physically. They said, give us this bread always. Always. Do you understand that he who comes to me will never hunger? He who comes to me will never thirst? Why? Because the bread that came from heaven is also the fountain of living water. 
And anyone who tastes of that water will never thirst again. I didn't plan on giving you verse 35, but he sums this all up in verse 35. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly. Oh, excuse me, I'm reading the wrong verse. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Notice how Jesus just tied hunger to belief. So the question is, are you hungry for the bread of life? Do you hunger and thirst after God? This whole narrative is bent to show you your motive. If your motive is not for Christ, if your motive is not really to seek after God, but only to fill your own bellies, to fill your own pockets, to fulfill your own desires, to fill your own needs, you are not seeking Christ. Christ has to, be sought, has to be sought out in spirit and in truth. Amen? Christ has to be sought out because you see the signs. You understand the meaning. You realize the truth that this is the Son of the living God. The only hope that you ever have of satisfaction, the only hope that you ever have of being filled, the only hope that you ever have of endurance to eternal life, and it's only found in Him. I'm reminded of Deuteronomy 8.3 and Matthew 4.4 where it says, And man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Why? Because the words that proceed out of the mouth of God are Christ because he is the word of God made flesh he is the bread of heaven that has come down amen he is the bread of life he is the fountain of life he is the wellspring of eternal life as I said Matthew 5 and 6 is blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness for they shall be filled. Revelations 22 and 17. I'm going to turn there and read. I'll be closing very soon. Somebody said amen. amen. <laughs> 22 verse 17. <clears throat> the spirit and the bride say come. And let the one who hears say come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take from the water of life without price. Let the one who thirsts. Let the one who desires. Let the one who hungers. Let the one who understands. Let the one who hears. Matthew chapter 11 verse 28 through 30 Jesus said come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden learn come unto me all ye that are labor and heavy laden for I will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for my yoke is easy and my burden is light Jesus came to seek and to save the lost 
But it's only those who hunger and thirst. And it's only those who come, who hear and respond. He alone can satisfy. He alone can quench the thirsty soul. He alone gives eternal life. He is the bread from heaven. And I ask you plainly, are you hungry for him? The whole gospel is summed up in these verses that we have read. Anyone who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Amen? We'll read that later on in this chapter. But the reality that we need this bread every day, it makes the prayer that we pray in the Lord's Prayer more, more, and more valuable. Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let's stand. Father God, as we close this time of reading and preaching of your word, God, we ask that you would help us as we come to you, God. Burdened with this life's cares, burdened with this life's worries, God, help us to take the yoke of Christ upon ourselves. And help us as children of God to feed freely from the bread of life which we have access to by faith. Help our believing hearts overcome our unbelief and our doubts. Lord, I pray that you would bless the time that we are about to have as fellowship. As we go to eat, God, we pray you bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies. And that we might glorify you. Lord, let us understand that we may be closing this portion of service. But what we go to now is ultimately and exactly a command expressly spoken to your church. To enjoy fellowship one with another. Help us as we do this to glorify you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.